Now, we've been looking at the book of Galatians, and we spent time with the first five verses last week. Let me remind you that this is an early epistle of the Apostle Paul. Some think that 1 Thessalonians was Paul's first letter. My own view is that Galatians was the first letter. It was written, in my view, to the churches of South Galatia, and it was written also before the Council of Jerusalem. All of those issues become important as we interpret certain portions of the book. And we come now to chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, and let me remind you that the Apostle Paul in this section will be dealing with the so-called Judaizers, uh, those who are tempting the Galatian believers away from a pure gospel of grace, that that gospel be mingled with works righteousness. Now, that's a view of the book of Galatians that I think is, is true to the text, It's a historic view. It's being challenged in various quarters today. But I nonetheless believe that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. May we briefly pray before we begin reading. Again, Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that we can bracket the Lord's Day with worship. We know that not every Sunday will we have an evening worship service, but most often we do. And what a privilege for us to once again spend a few moments in your word and to sing praises to your name, and to offer our prayers and our supplications to you. Bless, we pray, this brief exposition of your word tonight, that it may go right to our minds and hearts and fill us with the truth as it is in Jesus. Deepen our convictions about the gospel, our commitment to the gospel, as we understand your ultimate sovereign commitment to us through sheer grace and mercy. And for those who may be with us tonight who are strangers to grace, We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will win them over according to his own own powerful working within the heart. Uh, Raise the dead to life, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 1, beginning with verse 6 through verse 10. This is the word of God. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, Paul the Apostle was bendable on all sorts of issues that did not compromise the gospel of Christ. But when the good news of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, this gospel of grace, when the gospel itself was the issue, the Apostle Paul was immovable. And we see that immovability in the passage that we have just read together in Galatians 1, 6 and following. I want us to see several things. The first thing is this. Paul is perplexed and amazed at the Galatians' defection from the gospel. We read in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, Paul goes on to say. Now, as we read these verses, beginning in verse 1 on into this section, one of the things that stands out 
is that this epistle begins to address the, the readers differently than other epistles of the Apostle Paul. If you take, for example, the book of Romans, you find a very lengthy thanksgiving in which he gives thanks for the church and he says warm things to the church of a personal nature. Well, you don't find anything like that here in Galatians. The usual thanksgiving is absent, it is abrupt, it is passionate, because the apostle knows that if salvation is what the Judaizers claim that it is, if it's mingling grace and works, if salvation is by works in any, in any degree, then Christ died for nothing. And Paul's passionate pastoral heart shows through. He's probably writing immediately after hearing the news of these false teachers who were attempting to lead Christians astray. And as he does so, he is uh, replacing commendation with astonishment in this passage. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. He expresses amazement. The Galatians had eagerly received the gospel. Now they are turning, which is a present tense. The verb is a present tense. They are in the process right now of turning, turning from the gospel, turning to a man-made religion of works. It is a deliberate desertion from the truth that the Apostle Paul had originally preached to them. And so he uses the word called. Did you notice? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Why does he say that? Because he wants to underscore from the beginning that it is all of grace from first to last, that it's a matter of the divine call of God, that we sinners are not aware of our need, that we do not by nature seek God, but God is a seeking God. He is the one who calls. He's underscoring grace. Works righteousness reverses this. Works righteousness makes man the seeker, not God. And so when he speaks of our calling in the grace of Christ, you see that Paul is underscoring that it is all of grace and not of works, not in the least degree. This contrasts with the purpose of the false teachers, which is to take these believers away from a gospel of free and sovereign grace. And so, people of God, the Apostle Paul is saying right out of the chute, as he comes with his boxing gloves on, he's very pugilistic in this passage, He's saying right from the start, if we forsake the gospel, we forsake the God of the gospel. If we forsake the God of the gospel, who is a God of grace, then we forsake all hope of salvation because he alone can save us by his sovereign grace and mercy. And so the Apostle Paul begins with amazement at their defection from the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing we see in this passage is that there is, after all, only one gospel. There is only one gospel. Look again at verses 6 and into 7. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. A different gospel which is really not another now, grace means that it's all of God. And by adding something, anything, anything, no matter what or how small, we destroy the concept of grace. It is either all of grace or it is all of works. There can be no middle ground. There is only one gospel, and the one preached by Paul's opponents is not it. It is not a gospel after all. So much for pluralism. <laughs> The Apostle Paul is totally unconcerned with that question. 
The Apostle Paul is concerned with holding out the exclusivity of the gospel. There is only one way to God, and that is through Christ. There is only one gospel. There is no other. Some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, he says in verse 7. In other words, it's volitional. It's deliberate. They are desiring to lead you away from the truth. These false teachers wish for you to desert the gospel of grace. It's not a slight misstep, an, inac- an inaccuracy of little significance that can be that can be dealt with through a conversation. The false teachers want to unsettle the believers in Christ all the while claiming that their view led to a better understanding of the gospel. Oh, we're not trying to do away with the gospel that Paul preached. We're trying to enhance the gospel that Paul preached. And by enhancing, of course, what they really mean is set it aside altogether and replace it with a works righteousness approach to the gospel. They purpose to lead astray. They were intentionally perverting. The word here is distorting the gospel of God. The word that is used here for distort, you see it. You see it here. Him who called you in the grace of Christ Christ, and returning to a different gospel, not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This word distort means to change something, often to change something into its opposite. And that's what's happening here. The nature of the issue at debate is the very heart of the nature of the gospel itself. If you follow the Judaizers, if you follow their false teaching, it is not that you have a gospel that is enhanced. The whole nature of the gospel is changed into its opposite. It is changed into something entirely different. It is no longer gospel if you follow the gospel of the false teachers. Now, how applicable today to our day and to ourselves and to our need. We live in a day, of course, of pluralism. We live in a day of, of, of syncretism. Islam, Christianity, what does it matter? It's all the same, we are told. But when we hold to such a view, this changes the Christian faith into its opposite. Remove the exclusivity of the gospel and you have removed the gospel. A gospel that does not say Jesus only is the Savior is no longer the gospel of Christ. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Mohammed is in a grave. Jesus rose from the dead. And so we must proclaim the exclusivity of the good news. And so Paul, in this passage, I hope you can sense it. I hope you can feel it within your heart. The Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul, is angry. He is angry with these false teachers. He is angry with their desire to pull true believers away from grace and away from sovereign mercy. He is angry because of syncretism, a blending of gospel with works. The gospel is being denied at its very core. Man is dead in sin, Paul tells us elsewhere, darkened in soul, in need of salvation, God is just, and he pronounces his word of judgment on sin. What is the answer to this problem that each of us has? The only answer to the problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No wonder, then, the Apostle Paul is angry, because he knows that this substitution for the true gospel removes any hope 
that man has of salvation. T.R. Glover, in his work on Paul, makes the statement, Paul saw a moral and spiritual more than equivalent for the judgment. The cross took at once that central place in the universe which had been held by the great white throne. It solved the problem of God's righteousness and man's sin. Precisely the point. Only through the gospel can we receive the righteousness that we need to be accepted by God. It is provided by God through his Son, and there is no other. And that's why Paul is angry. There is no other gospel that honors God. No other gospel by which sinners like you and like me can be saved. Well, there's a third thing I want you to see in the text. I want you to see the seriousness with which the Apostle Paul handles this whole matter in that he denounces those who pervert the gospel. He denounces those who pervert the gospel of grace. He says in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, Let him be accursed. Now, when the apostle says, but even if we, he includes himself, doesn't he? He's including himself along with anyone who would pervert the gospel of grace. Judge my ministry by faithfulness to the gospel, he is saying. Now, can you imagine a more authoritative messenger than an angel from heaven? What powerful beings they are. What awesome figures they are. Imagine an angel appearing to you. Not the sort of thing that people think about when they think of angels, but the kind of, the kind of beings we read of in the Bible, before whom John was tempted to fall in worship. There's an angel who comes. And imagine him coming with a message from God, or a message that he claims to be from God. Can you imagine a more powerful messenger than an angel from heaven? But the Apostle Paul says it doesn't matter, even if an angel were to come. Anyone who brings this false message of works mingled with grace, don't accept what they say. Don't receive what they say. And today I think the fad is putting experience in the first place, or eloquence, or charisma, or personality. But my, my friends, I think it's essential for us to understand that it's the message that matters, A man may be truly eloquent. He may have great personal charisma. He may present uh, his message in very winsome ways. He may sway the crowds. All of that may be the case. But is it true? That's the question. Does it sway my emotions? Does Does it lead me to do this or that? No, no. The question is, is it true? Is it what the Bible teaches? And so it's not eloquence, charisma, personality. It's the message that matters. It is not the true gospel because of the one who preaches it. It is the true gospel because of the one who gave the message to preach and because of the message itself that is preached. And we need to be very discerning here because congregations are often swayed by personalities and swayed in various ways. Is the gospel at the core Is the gospel at the center? Is Christ uplifted? Is Christ being preached? Is Christ the issue? And so Paul says, May false teachers who bring such a false gospel, may they be anathema esto, the Greek text says. Let them be anathema. 
Now, various translators, various interpreters, and various commentators have taken that word anathema. And that word anathema later in the church is applied, I mean after the New Testament period, later is applied to church discipline. And there are some very well-known commentators who want to read that back into the New Testament document of Galatians. And they say what Paul the Apostle is really saying is that if someone brings a false gospel, then let him be excommunicated. Now, excommunication is extraordinarily serious, and there are eternal issues that relate to excommunication. But that is not what Paul is saying here. They're trying to soften the blow, don't you see? They're trying to to soften what the Apostle Paul is saying. They can hardly believe that the Apostle Paul means what he says, but he does. If we were to look at other passages in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, for example, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. It's this word, anathema. Romans 9.3, the Apostle Paul says, I could wish myself accursed from Christ and expelled from fellowship with him. It's this word, anathema. What is Paul saying? The Apostle insists that anyone, anyone who alters or modifies the gospel, these false teachers who are preaching this false gospel, anyone who does that deserves God's curse for it. Or, to put it more plainly, they deserve damnation for it. And he presses the point and drives it home all the more in verse 9 by saying, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one received, let him be accursed. What I said when I was with you before, I say again, Add law to grace as a means of acceptance with God, and you nullify grace. And if anyone nullifies the grace of God and preaches that to the people of God, let that preacher be anathema. Now, we have to be very discerning here. We have to listen well. We have to be in the book. Because you know what rat poison is, don't you? Rat poison is cornmeal. At least some forms of rat poison are cornmeal. 99% cornmeal. It's the 1% of arsenic that kills the rat. So, if you have a gospel of grace and you add to it just that 1% of works righteousness, saying to the people of God, grace plus, grace plus this, grace but this, you have, you have mingled works and grace with arsenic. And it eventually will grow and it will multiply in the church. And it's the whole idea of the leaven, leavening the whole lump of dough. It will eventually destroy gospel preaching in a congregation or a denomination. We've seen it time and time and time again. Legalistic attachments to the gospel so alter its character as to make it no gospel at all. And so let's look at these verses again. Just read them again. Verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
Leon Morris rightly says, if salvation comes by God's free grace, then it is not earned by keeping the law. If it comes by keeping the law, it is not God's free grace. And so the gospel brings freedom. Note the anathemas. Note them well, because a different gospel brings judgment. Now, you know this in your own conscience as a believer. You've experienced this. You slip back into thinking that somehow you need to earn God's favor by what you do, and you become anxious, and your, your heart feels condemned. What's the answer to that? Well, the antidote is the gospel. You come back to the gospel. You return to the gospel of free and sovereign grace. And what is true experientially is also true of the preaching of the gospel itself, that the only antidote to real guilt is the gospel of grace. Paul says in another place, law brings wrath. And if we attempt to build our view of salvation upon works that we perform or things that we do or law that we keep, then the production will be not grace and mercy, but wrath in the Christian life. It is altogether a matter of grace and grace alone. And that brings me to the next thing I want you to see briefly in this evening service from this passage, and it's ministering in gospel freedom, ministering in gospel freedom. Notice how free the Apostle Paul is in his own ministry, as he himself understands that he is ministering out of the fullness of the grace of God in his own life. He says in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. To discredit Paul, he was accused, evidently, of living for man's favor. We see various indicators of that throughout the book of Galatians, where the false teachers have said certain things about the Apostle Paul, and we'll note some of those as we move along. But the Apostle Paul was not living for man's favor. The opposite was the case, and anyone who knew Paul in his ministry would understand this. Paul is striving to please God, not to earn his favor, but because Paul has been shown God's favor. No matter what persecution that might bring, Paul is determined to please God and not man. And the trap of the church, the trap into which often the church has fallen, and especially, I think, in our day, the, fall, the trap into which we have fallen is wanting to become popular rather than faithful. And so the church dulls the edge or holds back or says everything with a sickly smile or avoids the themes of judgment or sin or hell or tries to win men by worldly means or blunts the gospel of grace. And we become in many instances thoroughly and utterly man-centered in our approach in the church. Now, it is impossible to live. It is impossible to live from the motive the motive of the heart, it is impossible to live with the motive of pleasing God and pleasing man at the same time. It is impossible to do. You cannot do it. And if you're attempting that, it's a kind of bondage. It really is. A real, a real bondage. Paul is Christ's willing slave. He says here at the end of verse 10, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay, a doulos, a bond slave, a bond servant. He is his willing slave. And the slave is completely under the master's authority. 
The Apostle Paul has given himself over to whole soul devotion to Jesus Christ. And serving Christ means surrendering the desire to curry men's favor. Now, it doesn't mean that you go out of your way to be offensive to people. It doesn't mean that you go out of your way to... No, no, grace in the heart means that we should learn increasingly how to be gracious one to another. But it does mean that there's freedom in understanding that I don't have to live for the favor of men. I live out of the grace that God has shown me in the gospel of grace. Now, some are here tonight, probably, who are bound by this inordinate desire to please people. And the gospel does something better. The gospel enables you to serve people. And it enables you to serve people disinterestedly, without concern for their favor, without any ultimate concern over whether they're pleased or whether they're not, over whether they like it or whether they don't. The gospel frees you from looking over your shoulder, wondering what people think, how you must position yourself for advancement, as in the case of ministry, uh, many ministers might do. And it enables you to do what pleases God, whether men like what you do or whether they don't. Now, I think that's summary, a summary of what the Apostle Paul is teaching to us in this astounding text in which he is so astonished with the desertion of these uh, professing Christians from the gospel that they had only recently received from Paul himself. Now, let me bring to you some final thoughts and implications. One final thought, one implication, is for the entire congregation, for each of us, but I think especially for the elders, the teaching and ruling elders, but for all of us, we're all included here, and that is the vigilance, the vigilance that we must have in ensuring that the gospel of of grace, that Christ is constantly preached and taught at Covenant Presbyterian Church. So many become discontent with the gospel in our day, and so many want novelty in our day. And it can be the temptation of church leaders to look for the novel rather than to stick with the solid and the substantive. To look for the new, the novel, rather than to stick with those things that the Bible teaches and what Scripture says. And especially, especially at the heart of it all, this gospel of sovereign, free grace. And so we need to be sure that those who teach you are teachers of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ always preached? Is Jesus Christ always heard? Is grace the clear message? And on this issue of the gospel, we must be intolerant. We want no one in our pulpit who does not preach the gospel of free, sovereign grace. Remember, the Galatians quickly are deserting the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached to them. And let me remind you again that it only takes one generation, one generation for a church to desert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only one. And so one of these days, unless Jesus comes first, I'll be in a grave. And the elders who are here 
will not be here. They will be in their graves. And then others of you who are coming up now, some of you young men are going to be elders and you're going to be deacons. And others of you will be leaders in this church. About this one thing, you must be intolerant. Only the gospel, only the gospel, nothing but the gospel at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Because it is a matter of life and death. Do you get that? Do you? That is essential. That is important. The second implication. In view of some recent debates concerning Paul and his gospel, and I have in mind the so-called new perspective on Paul, it is instructive to note Paul's severe statements demonstrating his unqualified commitment to the gospel of grace. He's not just talking about ecclesiology, as important as that is. He's not talking about something less than eternal salvation. He's talking about the core matter of eternal salvation. The gospel is at stake, defined by atonement and justification. And Paul warns against any perversion of that gospel. And Paul's language screams, beware, beware. And he is absolutely, absolutely committed to the, to the truth of the gospel to the extent that he would have us remember that there are times for soft words and there are times in which we are to ameliorate and there are times in which we are to bring about consensus, but there are times in which we have to draw lines. And we have to say, here and no further. Here, this is the truth. This is the gospel. And there will be no compromise of the gospel. And to be able to say with Paul the Apostle, on the authority of God's Word, we don't say this on our own. If there are teachers in our churches who preach any other gospel than this gospel, let them be anathema. Also, I think there's a special word here to ministers. And all of you need to hear that because all of you are responsible at some point or other in the selection of ministers, the call of a minister to a congregation. And there are ministers of the Word here tonight. Calvin says, All those who have the responsibility and the duty of teaching the church of God must forget the favor and approval of the world. If they do not, they can never carry out their duty faithfully. For men will always desire to be pandered to and cannot bear being reproved for their sins as they deserved. Now, that's a powerful remark that every minister of the gospel should hear. Is it too much for the church to expect her ministers to conduct their lives and ministries in the fear of God? Is it too much for the church of Lord Jesus Christ to expect her ministers to actually preach Christ? Is it too much for the church of Jesus Christ to expect her ministers to actually stick with the gospel of grace? That's what Calvin is saying. And when a minister becomes confused on this point and begins to pander and begins to be more concerned about what people think than about the good news of the gospel, then he's lost his bearings. Well, people are going to leave. Well, well, people aren't going to like it. Well, well, the church may not grow as large as some others. Well, the call is faithfulness. That's the call. And then another implication Every person needs to know the message of redemption for himself or herself, and that means you who are here tonight. Do you know that message? Give up on thinking that you have even a drop of merit 
Otherwise, you will not come to Christ. It is that pride of personal merit that keeps sinners away from Jesus. And Paul preaches for sinners. What our age lacks more than anything is a sense of despair. Oh, we hear about hopelessness, but it's it's a sham. Our culture doesn't believe that it's in despair and hopelessness. We're filled with pride and arrogance. What our day needs more than anything is a sense of lostness and despair, a recognized sense of sin and the presence of an infinitely holy God so that the gospel, the gospel becomes meaningful as we preach it and so that we understand that there is not one stitch of my own works that are woven into the righteous robe of Jesus Christ which he wove on the loom of the cross. Not one stitch. And so when there is that sense of despair in the presence of an infinitely holy God and we understand ourselves to be sinners, where that is present, nothing but the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ will do. And that is why Paul is intolerant. That is why Paul is angry. He's angry because of love. Don't you see? His, he is angry because of his love for God. He is angry because of his love for sinners. And we are cruel if we give sinners the impression that there is any other way to be saved but Jesus Christ. But with Paul the Apostle, we would conclude by saying, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes in his heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. May the Lord keep us faithful to this his word and his gospel of grace. Amen.